0: Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga, with yogis from around the world. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org.
1: From Spirituality and Health magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Before I introduce our guest, I want to invite you to join me in Nashville, Tennessee, the weekend of March 24 to 26, for a gathering I'm calling Beyond the Parochial. It celebrates the publication of my new book, The World Wisdom Bible, an anthology of perennial teachings from the world's religions that I think is an antidote to so much of the madness that is going on in the world of religion today. Our mission is to place a free copy of The World Wisdom Bible next to Gideon Bibles wherever they are found. To learn more about this Move Over Gideon movement, please visit oneriverfoundation.org. That's oneriverfoundation.org. And I appreciate you checking it out. Our guest today is Emily Esfahan-Smith. She's the author of the new book, The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. Emily writes about psychology, culture, and relationships. And her work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Time Magazine, The Atlantic, and many other publications. A review of her book appears in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health Magazine. Emily S. smith welcome to Essential Conversations.
2: It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, I appreciate your giving us the next 20 minutes. The book was fascinating. And before we get into it, though, your life seems fascinating. So I want to ask you maybe an odd question. But from what I can tell, and what I understand is you grew up within, and you may still be within the Sufi tradition, but you grew up within Sufism You went to graduate study in uh, positive psychology, which has sort of been hijacked uh, by the happiness movement. And now you you find yourself promoting meaning rather than happiness as life's ultimate goal and love as the key to meaning. So my first question is, do you see a thread running through your life from Sufism to positive psychology to the search for meaning slash love?
2: Well, I well thank, thank you for that question that's so thoughtful I do think that there is a thread running through it um for for those who may not know listening in Sufism is a school of mysticism that's associated with Islam and one of the main tenets of Sufism is practicing loving kindness and and service to to all, all, all that, all that lives, and so I grew up with people who really were just full of love and and practiced love ever, everywhere they could, and, and they were also people who were very much concerned with spiritual pursuits. So the Sufis meditated regularly, and they were constantly striving to grow closer to God. And I think that that left an impression on me as a child. It, it, I, I, I saw people whose lives were so meaningful and who had clear answers to how to lead a meaningful life. It was, it was through love and through remembering God. As I got older, I began to wonder about whether and how you could lead a meaningful life outside of a spiritual system and, and whether that even made sense. And that search first took me to philosophy, which is what I studied in college, and then eventually to psychology and positive psychology, which, as you mentioned, is what I studied in graduate school. So I think the the thread that's running through this is this this concern that I think we all of us share. I don't think I'm unique in in, in having it. Um, this concern with how do we lead a meaningful life? What is a good life? And and how can we apply it to every day?
1: So. Were you part of a specific Sufi order?
2: Yes. So the probably the most famous Sufi order are the Mevlevis, who are the whirling dervishes uh, that you know we we see kind of in the media every now and then. But my parents belong to a Sufi order that originated in is uh, in Iran in the 14th century and is called the Nimatullahi order of Sufism. Uh, today, it has meeting houses
1: uh, all over the world. Hmm. So so you actually grew up in this tradition. Are you yes. still practicing in some way?
2: It, it, it's it is still part of my life, yes
1: So I just want to clear up not clear up I just want to ask one other question about this and then we will get to the book. but you you know talked about I mean zikr in a sense you know remembering God and I'm you know my ears perked up when you when you said that. And I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm sure other people's did as well. So you can you just tell us a little bit about what remembering God means and, and maybe the practice that you do with regard to it?
2: Absolutely. Sufis, in, in this order, they every Thursday and Sunday night, they go to a Sufi house and they meditate for several hours. They sit on the floor, either on their knees or with their legs crossed. And Usually, Iranian Sufi classical Iranian Sufi music is playing in the background. Uh, occasionally, there the, 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 there will be poetry that's read, and throughout all of that, they're meditating and focusing on their breath and repeating a name or an attribute of God over and over again in conjunction with the breathing in and the breathing out. And so, so that's that's the practice.
1: Okay, so it's it's some, some similar to to Zickers that I've been to, but it's not, there's no circle movement. There's no, I've been to the Medlevi things. I've yes. done some work with pierzia and his community.
2: Right. Yeah. There's no, it, it's not, it's not the whirling dervishes. It's more kind of sitting and meditating, though sometimes there's more, there can be some more movement.
1: All right. Well, we won't go into Sufism because the book is about meaning. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: and, and I, I want to ask you a question about something you say in the book. You talk about, Our culture, so I'm assuming our culture means modern or postmodern Western culture, is obsessed with happiness, yet most of us aren't happy. And when I read that, I thought immediately of of, uh, Henry David Thoreau and and Walden somewhere. He says that most of us lead lives of quiet desperation. So what's your sense of that? Are we really just sort of fundamentally unhappy? It's...
2: It seems to me fairly undeniable that over the last four or five decades, that rates of depression have been rising. Uh, The suicide rate has been rising. In fact, it reached a 30-year high just last spring. Uh, Rates of loneliness are also increasing. And so there does seem to be this, this sense of malaise that's overtaking people. And my argument is that what's causing that malaise is this existential vacuum, as, as Viktor Frankl might call it, this, um, this hole inside of us that can be, that must be filled with meaning with some why to get, you know, to get us out of bed in the morning with some purpose. And, and that is not there. I think for a number of reasons, one might be the fact that we've been distracted by the happiness frenzy which is telling us that the point and purpose of life is to be happy. And so we focus on that instead of on meaningful pursuits. I think another reason is probably the fact that religion is, is no longer as central to public life as it used to be. And that was the default path to meaning for most people across human history. So I think that there is this malaise and I think that it's the, it's the, the what's causing it is a lack of meaning.
1: So, Let's be clear about when you when you say what's causing this is a lack of meaning. So how how should we understand meaning? Meaning, yeah. What do, what do you have in mind?
2: I I take the kind of a psychological approach in in my book, and so the definition that I give of meaning is one that comes from psychology, and this is so this is how psychologists define it. They say that meaning lies in connecting and contributing to something that is greater than the self and beyond the self, and. When social scientists ask people whether their lives are meaningful, people say that their lives are meaningful when these three conditions are satisfied. First, uh, they they feel that their lives have significance and worth. Uh, in other words, they feel that their lives matter. Uh, second, they feel that their lives are driven by a sense of purpose. In other words, they have goals that contribute to the world in some way. And finally, they They conceive of their life as coherent and comprehensible, which means that they don't think of their experiences as random and disconnected, but they see them as part of a greater whole, a narrative, even a story, you could say, about who they are and how they got to be that way and their relationship to the world.
1: So religion tries to provide those things, right? Religion says you matter. There's a purpose to your life that things aren't random. There's a coherence to it. And just the way you said it, it often does that through a story of one hero or another or one heroine or another, you know, whatever, whatever the religious um, model, you know, is. So, but you're not, you're not presenting a religious approach to this. So in a sense, are you secularizing, and this is not a criticism, I'm just curious, are you you sort of taking a secular approach to what religion has been doing for thousands of years?
2: That's, that's one way to put it. And, And certainly I think one of the questions that drove me to write this book was how, how can we find meaning out outside of religion? And in my book, I, so I interviewed a lot, many people from all walks of life and I turned to the social science research. And I also turned to the wisdom of, of religion, of literature, of art, kind of trying to bring together a whole array of sources to see what what is it that people have in their lives when they say their lives are meaningful? And the four things that came up again and again were a sense of belonging, a purpose, storytelling, and a sense of transcendence. And whether people were religious or not, those were the four things they talked about when they talked about whether their lives had meaning. And I mentioned that because, of course, if you look at religion, religion provides those four things. And I would argue that The reason why religion has been such a powerful source of meaning for people across history is because those four pillars of meaning are there as part of it.
0: Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive.
2: Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be religious to lead a meaningful life, because these pillars are things that we can build up whether we're religious or not, in our lives. So belonging, you can find that in your family purpose. You can find that in your work. We're all telling stories about our lives all the time. Transcendence, you mentioned Thoreau. He found transcendence in nature and we can find it in art, in music. So I you know, I don't want to say, I think, I, I, I don't really want to say that I'm trying to secularize the pursuit of meaning because I think the question of meaning is ultimately a spiritual question. It deals with kind of our ultimate concerns. But I do think that you can not necessarily be a person of faith and still lead a meaningful life.
1: So I want to ask you to respond to something. Um, And and this may not be fair exactly, but uh, it's a quote. As soon as I I started reading the book, I thought of of something that uh, Joseph Campbell wrote in The Power of Myth back in 1988. Mm -hmm. So I, I went to look it up. And I think what you're doing is sort of an answer in a sense to what what he's saying. So let me just read you this this brief quote. Uh, Campbell says, people say that what we're all seeking is meaning. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think that what we're seeking is an experience of being alive
0: mm-hmm. so that
1: our life, our, our life experiences on the purely physical plane will have resonances with our own innermost being in reality. So it sounds to me, and so I'm going to so you can really say, yeah, I'm on, I'm on the right track or not. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me that you're, you're taking this idea uh, and saying that the meaning that you're talking about is not this abstract meaning that he's referring to almost, um, what, 40 years ago? Oh my goodness. No, 30 years ago. Um, and, and, and you're really talking about an experience of meaning through the four, you call them the four pillars of meaning, but there's a, there's an experiential component to this, isn't there?
2: There is. And I, I definitely think that the the vision of a meaningful life that I'm promoting in my book is an active life. It's a it's a life full of experiences. And Aristotle, who I write a little bit about in my book, talked about the the flourishing life as a life of activity. You're 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 doing things and you're engaged with the
1: world. So since you brought him up. I, and I don't know how many people are going to want to get into the weeds on this, but you do a great job with it very briefly in the book. Tell us about Aristotle for a second. And, and you said flourishing life. In so many translations, it's uh, happiness, a happy life. But you, you define, I mean, you, you you take the translation of flourishing. What's the difference between flourishing and happiness?
2: Aristotle said that the the point of the point of life is what he calls eudaimonia. And as he said, many people translate that as happiness, and they take Aristotle to mean that the point of life is to be happy. But actually, Aristotle had really harsh words about that the happy life, what, what he called the, the hedonic life. He said that it was a life for animals and it wasn't uh, it, it didn't have very much depth. He thought of eudaimonia, or what's been translated as flourishing, uh, to be a life in which you're realizing your potential, you're leading a virtuous life, you're a member of your community. And so if you think about those things, they they won't necessarily breed happiness in us. You know, they, They'll require sacrifice. Realizing your potential it will be effortful and stressful. And yet, these are things that he says we should do because they are in themselves good, and which we do. We, you know, we pursue these kinds of things all the time, and the reason isn't because we're we want to be happy, but it's because we want something deeper than happiness, which you know you could call flourishing. I would maybe call meaning. Other people might call you know well being.
1: I think that's very important. The, the distinction you're making, the way you're understanding Aristotle, and the way you're presenting this, um, and I think. Okay, it's important philosophically. I think it's also important sociologically, politically. So I want to talk about that for a second or ask you about that for a second. It, it seems to me, I mean, just take one of the pillars of the four that you mentioned regarding meaning, the pillar of belonging. So one of the things that we saw in the last election is that people are fundamentally tribal, and we belong to these, we have these fierce attachments to different tribes. And the, and it turns from, which is not necessarily a bad thing being tribal, but when tribal becomes tribalism and the other is now the devil or the, you know, we sort of demonize the other. We end up in these incredibly bifurcated, in an incredibly bifurcated society. And I'm wondering if you see, or if you can help me understand how your understanding of meaning could take us, without without denying the tribal nature of belonging, could allow us to belong to, uh, you know, my, my liberal tribe, my Jewish tribe, and at the same time to transcend that limited tribal idea into uh, a national tribe or even a global tribe. When
2: we when we hear the word belonging, I think you're right that there is this association of belonging to a group or belonging to a tribe or, or labeling ourselves as, you know, left or right or woman, what a runner, yogi, what have you. And I, I define belonging in, in a slightly different way. The psychologists say that, um, belonging comes when, when two, two conditions are satisfied. One, you you kind of are having an interaction with someone and two you're having an interaction where you both are expressing mutual care for one another. In other words, you both value one another. You both treat one another like you matter. And I really like that definition because I think it it gets at what you're asking, which is that we're not we're we're more than our groupish identities. At the end of the day, we're all kind of fellow travelers in life. And when we're interacting with a fellow human being, I think that it's important that no matter who they are, we treat them with value and, and we do everything we can to communicate to them that, that they matter to us. Even if it's someone we just met, the cashier at the grocery store, our colleagues at work, our children, there is just this this fundamental dignity that each person has that I think it's our responsibility to honor by cultivating moments of belonging with them, regardless of how they identify themselves.
1: So very beautifully put. So now I want to take it back. in the minute we have left, I want to take it back to where we started into Sufism. And while you were talking, it occurred to me, and this may not be true of the, the, the school of Sufism in which you were raised, but I was taught anyway, in the Medlevi order, that, uh, the way they understand la ilaha illallah, there is no God but Allah, there's no God but God, as meaning more than God is simply the only God, but that there's nothing else but that, but Allah, but God, and we're all manifestations of that singular reality. Is that, could you see that, and there's two questions here. One, do you, is that also part of your tradition? And two, do you see that as the ultimate belonging that would allow us to treat all beings as ends in themselves rather than means to our own ends.
2: Yes. And, 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 and yes, yes. And yes. I think that it's, it's, I I love this idea and, and you see it not just in Sufism, but in all of the great religions of the world that we are, we are part of God's creation and we should love all of God's creation because we're part of it. And because God in an act of love created us and the rest of the world and I think that that gets back to what you started this show with, which is this concept of love that can, that can transcend these barriers that we have, these, these labels that we place on ourselves. And if we can just put that at the front and center of our minds, then our, our, not only will will our own lives be meaningful, but we can lift others up as well and help them lead more meaningful lives.
1: Amen to that sister, Emily.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much.
1: My guest today was Emily Esfahan-Smith. She's the author of The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. You can learn more about her work at emilyesfahansmith.com. And you can read a review of the book in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Emily, thanks so much for being with us on Essential Conversations.
2: It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: That was our pleasure. Thanks. Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga. And do it with yogis from around the world. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to SpiritualityHealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Al Matassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.